0: extremely excited about my next interview. Today, I am joined by Alex Gurevich, founder and chief investment officer of Hante Investments. Alex, welcome to Forward Guidance.
1: Thank you very much for having me on. It's a pleasure. Uh,
0: Alex, you are a macro manager. You know, Some people invest in stocks, some people invest in bonds. You are really deep in the trenches of the uh, macro derivatives markets, forward swaps, interest rate swaps, euro dollar options, dividends, futures, so when you know some people watching this they may have an investment account, they may own stocks, you trade some stocks too, but your main remit is advanced macro products with interest rates and, and currencies, uh, so I just want to let people people know that Alex, can you uh, explain what hante is and uh, and what what that means and
1: why that 's a significant term for, for you well Hante is a term from a Japanese strategic game Go, as I like to say some Western people haven't heard about it, but I like to say it's probably the the oldest and the most popular game in the world. And honte in Japanese means uh, to move, which means something which is not flashy, not necessarily accomplishes its goals in the fastest way, but something which gives you the best chances of victory in the long run. And uh, I felt like that term reflects my approach to investment philosophy and Conte Investments is the firm where I manage client money and of course my own money as well and the principle for me is to I'm trying to basically have clients to have the same investment experience as I have basically do for people that I would do for myself as I'm doing it for myself and do it to have more money in the long run not think about so much about what is your monthly performance what is your quarterly performance of course any given day, you'd rather be up money than down money. But think about through how do you structure your business in such a way that several years later, you have more money than now.
0: There, there we go. Alex, people watching this, I'm sure they're, they're on the edge of their seat. They're wondering, what does Alex think about Fed funds futures? Are euro dollars overpriced, underpriced? Where is inflation going to be? What about this sort of swap rate? And questions about the future. We will get to that at the end of our conversation, but the bulk of today's conversation, Alex, I want to devote to your book, "The Trades of March 2020: A Shield Against Uncertainty." It was just released only a few weeks ago. Alex, I read your book. It is, I would say, not only one of the best finance books I've read, but one of the best books uh, uh, ever. It is a Wall Street best. is on the Wall Street best-selling list. Very impressive. Not only it's in its own right, but also given that you you know, talk about very advanced financial concepts that you know I was reading, and it is. Uh, as the name would suggest, it is about the month of March 2020, which if you were trading, actively trading macro products. It was one of the most hellish and insane months of all time. And you carefully, painstakingly documents what you and your colleagues were doing each specific trade, each specific day. What were you doing on this? What was the correlation on that? And you uh, uh, you have these Slack chats of you were, you were talking to your, uh, the, the chief trader, you were talking to the quant researcher, what were they saying? And I mean, it's just, it is a fantastic, fantastic read. Alex, can you just give us an overview? Tell us why, you know, why was it so important for you to document this time?
1: Well, first of all, uh, of course, uh, March 2020, this is, I kind of always reluctant to say this is a unique once in a lifetime thing. Because September 11th was another unique thing and then global financial crisis was another another thing and um, March 2020 was a very interesting month which is different from other months on trading life what is particularly different is and in which way it's somewhat rem- reminded September 11th only on a broader scale that something is happening in financial markets but it's also affecting you personally like when I was on September 11th, I was in New York City. I had people I knew die on that day. And at the same time, I had to trade financial markets. But I was not maybe in the very thick of it, like I was not actually working in the towers. I was working midtown. I didn't have, I maybe had two or three people I know die, not 30 people I know die, right? Which was the case for some people. So there's a degree of how much you could be in the thick of it. And for people who are in a completely different spot. This was an awful event, but somewhat remote, right? And people didn't have anything to do with New York City. Now, pandemic was such that March 2020 was probably meaningful, maybe not necessarily financially for everybody, but in terms of the, the beginning, the onslaught of pandemic, shutdowns, the fear, the uncertainty, the arguments. I think everybody was affected on a personal psychological level. And yet, because of pandemic, lots of people had to make decisions. And it was not just traders anybody all the government officials health officials any business you run you had to decide you shut down you have to run it you go you go remote you just call it call it a life right and just shut everything down uh, we and because of that it's a very unique situation when it, People in position when they had to make decisions were also like thinking about, well, I have to do it while my kids are at home, zooming three feet away from me. For some people, that was the case, right? And I wanted to document this process of managing through a very extreme environment. But when you're not yourself immune from it, you're not managing the crisis on some other country, as very often macro traders dispassionately do. I'm going to buy this in China, sell this in Brazil or such and such events in the Middle East. How do I play that? Now you think, how do you play that? It, but it's also playing you at that moment. And that is what I really wanted to focus on. And I had this joke, uh, well, I had two jokes, which kind of led to the creation of the book. First of all, we're talking about how short the bear market of 2020 was. But then I said, well, every day feels like a month in March. So by that standard, it's a normal duration bear market. <laughs> if you count every day as a month, then it's like oh, normal bear market, right? <laughs> And then when that I that I realized how like protracted were the events of March 2020, I uh, said, "Well, somebody should r- write a book about this month." And then it kind of evolved to, "Well, I actually have in a better position than anyone to write it because I have this faith. Well, almost anyone because I have this faithful record of how things develop step by step." And then I realized that it would be. Aside from what I can say, and I think I can say interesting, valuable things, and people like reading my opinions about investments, but on top of it, being able to narrate it in such a faithful way that people actually can see the Slack chat, what we're actually saying, and I'm just commenting along with it and explaining my ideas and explaining how it applies, they can really see the very unbiased picture of it because all trading accounts all stories even first-hand accounts of traders who write about their careers um are somewhat biased it's how i remember things what i want to present what i want to choose to talk about and i on purpose did it in such a way that i have no choices i put everything every trade we did in march is there basically with that, there was no editing in terms of what trades we did that month good bad small large Everything is there. For anyone who is an aspiring trader, any young person who thinks like, I want to be a trader, I really honestly think that there is not a better book without even if it sounds really arrogant, it's not because it will teach you how to trade, but it will be like say for example if you're trying to be a surgeon, you can read from books and you can be in the operating room. And this book kind of allows you to be in the operating room. And you might think that even you might have better experience being intern on a trading floor. In some ways, yes, because you will hear the chat, the moods, the looks and everything. But not all interns really get exposed to what's happening in the command center. They might be told, do this and do that, but they're not actually exposed to all the thinking that goes behind every trade. And this way I can, even though physically you're not present, but mentally I can completely put you into the operating room because you can see what is the flow of thought behind all the trades. You might like it, you might not like it, you might not care. As you mentioned before, it's a lot of a markets for some people. You might never trade those markets, but trading is trading. It's about managing risks, it's about discipline, it's about researching your trades, about coming up, why the trade I'm doing is good, why am I smarter than others, what is my edge, and how do I keep it? So I feel like I could, I, I really felt that, that format allowed me to capture all of those things.
0: Alex, we're, we're going to get into specifics soon. But my, my sort of broad question is, why was the not maybe not why, but how was the price action of March so strange? And how did it compare to let's say, 2008, when, uh, you know, every, everything was going crazy, but at least you knew, perhaps you know, long bonds would work and you wanted to own some credit default swaps, better to own credit default swaps than be short them. Uh, you know, and also, can you talk about just the, the emotional toll? You, know, you, you had a reputation for being very calm and collected under pressure. I think your, your nickname was, was the icebreaker. But in March of 2020, you, you, know, you, you found a, a new level of stress that I think you, you had not found in, in your, your long career.
1: Yeah, there were definitely, as you point out, there are similarities and there are differences about this period. In the book, I used a lot about um, a lot of um, metaphors using black hole, because I was talking about like financial markets get sucked on this black hole when the pandemic started and nothing could stop it. No actions by the Fed could stop us actually falling into the singularities when the texture of financial markets was completely ruptured and everything was distorted and it felt like time and. a relationship between financial products all started to get distorted because the velocity of this complete change in the life, not of several people, but the entire society was so rapid that it did feel like passing through the event horizon. And what I made a point is like, there was no stopping that. You could come on the other side from the white hole, but you cannot return from the black hole. You cannot like basically come back to the same universe. And I think we are finding out now that, in some sense, I was correct about it, even though I wrote it a while ago. We're just not living, like, basically, economy is good, things are good, but we're not in the same universe or before pandemic. I'm not saying it's a bad universe, but we're in a different universe right now. And that idea of how we got... And you could probably apply it to global financial crisis, too. So I, I talked about, yes, I'm very calm. I never, like, even you could see with from my Slack records, I, I don't really curse. I think there was one time... I actually pointed out in the book, one time I started, I get annoyed at someone and say, just buy it. When somebody was like, well, yes, this price, there, this is there, this is like, buy, buy, buy it now, stop chatting, right? So I got like, one time I got a little annoyed, right? But generally, I'm very calm and very methodic. I kind of believe that if you do it now, 10 seconds later, it's not so important because the price could be better or worse 10 seconds later. It's much more, it's much more important to be deliberate and actually be clear in your mind what it is that you're doing than to rush to do things like that speed or that kind of velocity of execution is not really as important as thinking through and making things uh, doing the correct trade that's my attitude however what happens is and i've noticed that even back in wall street days and i tried to capture it in this book a little bit back when i worked for a bank i could be very calm but when markets stress me my stress kind of accumulates and pours out in my personal life but when you but then in a personal life in a normal environment you have ways to distress. I mean everyone has their own ways to distress. Like I I did martial arts I did a lot of martial arts, for example, that really helps me to balance my mind and body and just kind of forget about forget about concerns of financial markets. You can go for a hike, you can go to the beach, you can do all those things that distress you and kind of when pandemic happened there was a stress coming from the other side of you you cannot you have work stress on one side but instead of going to distress in your regular life you have stress coming on the other side and i even point out in the book that the first few weeks especially hard of shutdown that you couldn't even go for a hike you were not allowed to go to the ocean you obviously you couldn't go like to any kind of training gym or any any so you had to try to do some exercise at home that you can and that was kind of that you kind of between a hammer and an anvil this way and much as we can, you can keep calm and professional deme- demeanor, but inside your mind is roiling. And I think that was true. Most people, I think they were definitely, I talked to some other managers about in March 2020. Some people were more calm and more, they didn't face so much stress. Some people were less worried about COVID. Some people just kind of had their portfolios to find. And then other people were falling apart. It's, uh, it's a range. I just showed where I was. But I think understanding that is also very important for any aspiring trader.
0: Alex, I want to choose a few moments from the book to give viewers a glimpse inside what it was like to, to run a macro hedge fund. At the first moment, I want to start with Alex, is an investment conference that you were at, I believe, in late January, and you were bullish on short-term rates so you had some call options on euro dollar uh futures and and outright positions in, in euro dollar futures uh so, so uh we'll we'll, we'll we'll sort of maybe you can glaze over that but you, you noted at the conference that no one was really talking about about covid so can you just talk about how you were kind of early to sense the gravity of covid but how even you uh you know way uh, uh, misjudge how serious it would
1: be yes it is interesting because how we're all Influenced by our subconscious biases, I've been a China skeptic for a long time, and actually incorrectly so. That was not the correct view. I mean, I think I made at first money, some money on the initial China currency devaluation in 2015, and then I gave it back later on when uh, China currency revalued. But it, my bias was always thinking like China is kind of a giant on clay legs from economic perspective, right? And that because there, there is a lot of private debt there, there's a lot of distortions, and a lot of the economy is kind of just a big air bubble. So when I saw a pandemic there, I was like, wow, that will affect the global economy because it will weaken China. That was really my thinking. It's embarrassingly not the way it was really, things played out at all, but I did not at that time in January think that it would be global pandemic. I had a sort of, that it would like uh, vanish as the first SARS pandemic. I felt it was bad, but with every transmission, the virus will become weaker. But I think I did think that it was going to impact the economy, but it might've been colored by my bias that I was looking for something to impact the economy because I knew that the next thing that would happen would take rates to zero globally. There was no other path. That was my bet. Like you never know what it is that is gonna happen next, because a lot of the events like are not really predictable September 11th even global financial crisis you could not see it the way it happened like European debt crisis or uh, the industrial recession of 2015 there are always brexit all those like shocks that happen usually every few years something happens and I knew there was a, that went late cycle in 2018, I knew there was a vulnerability. Like you mentioned that I was betting on rates to go to zero. That had nothing to do with the pandemic. And I was already making money on this bet. I had a great 2019 when the Fed started cutting rates, when things rolled over a little bit on the inflation front. And that was very consistent with my position. But I knew that like another push, another shoot to drop and we're going to zero rate. So I think I was very quick to see that this could be another shoe that was dropping but not very quick to see that it's something that is going to be personally horrible mm.
0: and uh can you talk to us about the positions that you were holding going into march of 2020 so late january and and mid-february so you had the, the euro dollars which were more of the short end and then you also had some, some long-term bonds and you know if you could explain a few of those terms that you think maybe people uh, you know won't understand
1: yeah, so, so euro dollar futures are contracts on inter, like they are a little confused it's, it's a confusing term for people who don't know it because it has nothing to do with euro. It, the term euro dollar comes from the fact that it's a uh, London interbank offer rate which is basically rates on deposits of dollar all around the world traded and the idea is like euro dollar are deposits between various European banks but in dollars. So it's basically futures on interest rates if they go higher that means interest rates are lower. So when you own call options, you're betting on interest rates going lower and you're making uh, a lot of money if they go to zero or negative, like in the case of Europe. And same thing with owning bonds. You own bonds, you bet on rates to go lower. So I had a lot of those bets because I thought that uh, and in 2008, it started in 2018 when market was all focused on rates going up and nobody really cared about the downside risk on interest rates, that rates can go, rates can go down and options were incredibly cheap. So I was able to buy options extremely cheap that would pay off if rates were not following the path that everyone was looking for and instead would go down. And I was actually had a strong opinion that that's the way they would go. So it was a great opportunity. What I emphasized in my book, and I will talk about this for a second, because I'm not a big fan of using options. I feel options are a trap for beginner traders often. Because it's so easy, like when people start looking at options, yes, I'm right, if I'm right, I make 10 to 1, and my downside is limited. It's a very kind of easy narrative to sell yourself in. But usually you kind of get what you pay for. And on average, short-term options, at least, don't make money. Like if you take all the options trading in all markets, they're usually slightly overpriced. Because very often, what is really painful about options, is that market can go in your favor, And I'm not explaining actually the basics of options. I'm hoping that the audience knows at least what an option is, right? So uh, if the market can go in your favor, but it it goes not fast enough, you can still lose money by holding an option. And this is extremely painful when you're a macro trader like myself. The key is uh, formulating the right view. It's not easy to be right because sometimes you're wrong. It's pretty precious. Just a ch- just being right about the market is it's a precious opportunity and if you structure your trade in such a way that you could be right about the market but still lose money it 's extremely painful and it's typically most cases not the pain I'm willing to bear to be right and to lose money and it 's a matter of psychology some uh, there are people who really like using options on macro markets uh, for example a uh, uh, very well known macro trader Jim Lightner who was a inside the house of money and I talk to him a lot. I'll actually be doing an interview with him soon, but we, we know each other well personally. He's a big fan of using options. He's willing to say like, hey, I'm right 50 to 75% of the time when I'm right, I get five to six to one payout, so I'm gonna do those. I don't want to put words on his mouth, but I'm just saying we had a lot of those conversations. He's like, I'm, I'm willing to put an option on and sleep at night. To which I responded as it's option decay that makes me stay awake at night. Like feeling that my portfolio is dribbling cash if nothing is happening. I hate that sense. So a lot of it is, and I talk, since my book is so much about psychology, I talk a lot about that you really need to choose a style of investing that fits you personally. It's not, there is not one strategy. There is many winning strategies. That's why investors diversify between different funds and managers. So what you, your goal is not to cover everything, but do something unique. So options normally don't suit my style very well. However, in this case the range of outcomes was so wide that some people thought rates were going to 4 or 5% and some people like me thought it was going to 0 so aside from the fact that my bias was towards 0 the options were just not pricing this wide range of outcomes it was i discussed it in more detail in the book but it it was a fundamental misprice not in the direction but in the option structure which is very this is a very important distinction because if you make an assumption, the thing is like if you make an assumption that your view is correct, all options will look good for you. Of course, if you think that like dollars going up 30 percent, all call options on the dollar will look very cheap. But you are plugging in your view. The question is whether they're cheap or not without plugging in your view. And that's a very important logical step to make for traders to assess one asset without uh, plugging in your view. Too. So, um, I had a lot of options and if you don't mind there is one more trade I had which I discussed there which turned out to be very critical because it also reflects a lot of my trading philosophy that I discussed in my first book, The Next Perfect Trade. I had a chapter about free lunches. Now free lunches are rare but sometimes there are chances to do trades which really have no downside. They might lose or make just a tiny bit but there is no realistic downside but if something weird happens, there is a lot of upside now some people think of options as such very deep out of the money like cheap options as such are the trades but with those you actually consistently lose money there are occasions of trades which don't have that profile you kind of make a little lose a little so you accept a little bit of noise but there is no consistent losing money but then when you make you make big and i always try to put those trades in my portfolio whenever there's a chance and i have done it in that time I had some of those, which I bought fed federal funds futures, which is actually futures on the on overnight rates set by the Federal Reserve policy for March 2020. And the reason is was I bought them is because I felt like well, they were easing in 2019. They're not going to start raising rates, so there was zero risk there. So you could buy them and maybe make half a tick or not. But if they're easing for any reason, COVID or otherwise, you make a lot of money. And that opportunity was really present, even in January 2020, you could buy March Fed Funds futures at a level which really used to nothing to lose. And that was a big chunk of my PL that first month, which managed to offset some other positions that might have been losing money and gave me like that tailwind to succeed.
0: Right. And especially because those call options went in the money so far that they became larger, the more that the the position moved in your favor so that sometimes you you, you couldn't even trim them fast enough because they were working so so quickly. I'll just say we we can include a few uh, charts on screen versus what the sort of options were pricing in terms of the distribution versus how you were weighing the odds of uh, uh, a Fed fund and by the way, closer to hundred means zero because that a hundred minus the interest rate is what implies the interest rate. Um, but but Alex, uh, for the interest of time, could, could you could you quickly uh, um, just explain your your thoughts? Well, not quickly. I mean, I want you I want you to <laughs> give us all, all your wisdom. Uh, no no rest. But um, you're thinking about why you thought the Fed was going to hike, and in particular the historical examples about how once they stop hiking, they they never hike again, and also as soon as they stop hiking, eases, cuts, are, are quite imminent, which surprised me.
1: Yeah, that uh, honestly, when first someone pointed out to me, and that was many years ago, some, somebody pointed that fact to me, I think it might've been like almost 20 years ago that it can not be 20 years ago, but I, I cannot pinpoint the date, but it was a very surprising fact told me. Because whenever we are like in the Zeitgeist guide of Fed hiking rates, raising rates, people are always concerned about inflation. And the last time they hike rates, they raise interest rates. They never do it with the thought of, "Oh, we're going to ease next, right?" It's always with the thought, "Maybe we'll need to raise rates more." Because if there was no need to raise rates, they wouldn't be doing it to begin with. One case in point is uh, May 2000, the beginning of internet bust, when uh, the stocks, internet stocks, already coming off the highs. There was already a lot of volatility happening, but the Federal Reserve had st- still so high inflation numbers and they hike rates. I believe to six and a half percent, 50 basis points, and of course they had to do intermittent surprise easing January 2001. But all the way up to the end of 2000, they were still uh, talking about risks being skewed towards high inflation. While and this was all while like the sell-off and the slowdown in the economy and the sell-off in the tech uh, stocks was unfolding and the huge wealth effect was being erased. Same thing happened in 2018. They raised rates in December 2018 in the middle of that big volatility and yeah. at the end of 2018. And then, what was funny about that, that back then, first people were accusing Fed of being out of touch and not paying attention to the markets. And then, when they stopped hiking rates, they were like, oh, they they with it. they just like trying to prop the markets. It's like, choose what do you want to criticize yeah. Fed of? To, to react to the markets or not reacting to the markets? The kind of critique that the central banks see from market participants are honestly really ridiculous. Not that I think that they always do things right, not that I don't make fun of them on occasion, but in, what I'm talking about right now actually is kind of a critique because they always overdo it and they always do that last hike, still looking at the current data without seeing like the data that the world is shifting, but they kind of almost bound by that because they have to be, what us say, data-driven. Uh, and yeah, it is amazing that six months and uh, after hike, there is usually days. Mm. So you had this view that was
0: bullish bonds on the long end, bullish bills, Fed fund futures on the short end. And that view was was based on historical examples of what the Fed had done. However, that those positions also happened to sort of be like a dream position, a dream portfolio for, for COVID. Um, so let, let's sort of like wind forward the, the clock. In February, the bonds, I believe... The notes, the bonds, uh, belly, long term, they were working in your favor. The Fed funds futures were working in your favor. We were also starting to see some jitters in the equity market. Can you just uh, give us a glimpse into what what it was like, you know, mid to late February?
1: Yeah, this was like the turning point because stock market actually made all-time highs. Somewhere like in the middle of February. I have the dates marked in my book, I think around February 20th, that made all-time highs. And then at the end of the month, it actually started tanking and bonds were already doing well into the beginning of of march and this is was the period when we're kind of starting to realize that pandemic is for real still not happening to us still not among us but there were like news already from europe it was already felt very uncomfortable and however in personal life things didn't change very much yet We still like so if we still all the way up to maybe march where we were still Meeting with friends, hiding friends, whatever, going to dance parties. I even talked about the last party <laughs> yes. that I went to, which was like the last weekend of February. We Since then, like for years afterwards, they called, remember the last party? <laughs> so, uh, and I'm glad that I did because I would be especially happy to go to that last party knowing that I'm going to have any more for quite a while, right?
0: Yes, definitely. Alex, didn't you also see a psychic uh, at the end of February who told, first of all, who, who told you a very interesting thing about the stock
1: market? Well, I would not say that I went to see a psychic. That would be a little okay. bit. We okay. were just chatting. It was a person who happened to have psychic abilities, or at least. She claims yes. so, right? And yes. She told me that uh, I, I think that the stock market was already beginning to go down. And she told me that she foresees like, the market boiling up on March 2- march 23rd which was exactly the day it bottomed out it's interesting that like we were mulling over all of those things but we were still not feeling like it's happening to us and i think it's only the beginning of march when we started to like hey we have to really start taking personal precautions
0: yes well personal precautions in y- your personal life but in terms of the portfolio you and, and Hante was doing were doing extremely well late february early march in fact you know the first chapter not the first chapter but the first section of the quartet of of the trades of March is called a victory parade because the Fed funds futures were, were rallying it hugely, the bonds were rallying hugely, and you know it's fun to we can maybe put some some screenshots up of you you're like, yes, exclamation mark, like, let's do it. It's it, this is working. Uh, and also I mean you describe the, the Euro dollar positions as a, a quote, fountain of cash. So there's a, a huge amount of P and L that was being generated by by you and, and Hante during that first week of March while Beta, long beta, long stocks, long commodities, whatever, uh, Bitcoin, we're, were having extraordinary pain. So what was it like to sort of bloom, bloom in the dark? You know, while, while every other investment manager is really struggling, you were doing very well.
1: Well, one thing that is important to emphasize that you mentioned, like, uh, it was kind of like a dream outcome from a portfolio perspective, Much it was a tragic outcome for the humanity. But I think it is somewhat, how to say, it's more of a norm, I think. for Well, I wouldn't say it's a norm, but it's not so strange for a manager like myself to be in that position. Because that's what actually we're supposed to do. The macro managers like myself are supposed to diversify portfolios. The reality is that on if you have several years of stock market just going up 10-15% at least every year, when you had periods like leading up to 2020 or even periods post-March 2020, There is very little work uh, required to improve portfolio performance. You could just be in stock index and you're doing quite well. Thank you very much. And very few macro managers can actually outrun the bull run in the stock market. The whole idea of having managers like myself is that they can perform well when stock market goes down. Now, in the ideal world, you make money both ways. You get it right both ways and you make money on the way up and make money on the way down. But you have to be distinctively because think about this. If you just think about it, your performance is completely uncorrelated to stock market and you on average make whatever you make, say 10 percent a year. Some years you're down 5 percent, some years you're up 15 percent and somehow it averages out to up whatever your return is, depending on your volatility but clearly you will be on average underperforming when stock market is going up. Because, for example, stock market is up 15%, you are up 7%, you underperform. Now, on the years when which uh, stock market is down, you'll be outperforming, because you're still up 7%, but stock market is down 10%, now you look great. So macro managers are supposed to provide that cushion for investors, that they have something working for them, even when other things don't. And A lot of investors, especially like I I work a lot with family offices, people are living like, it's not just a stock portfolios. You have your house and your house price goes up and economy goes well. You might have some, your own business. A lot of people are business owners themselves. They can have some startup investments. All of those, like any rental properties, all of those things go up. So you have a lot of beta in your life. So... What I do is one of the ways to provide people with diversification. So I don't feel bad at all if on a given year, stock market goes up a lot and I'm not catching up to it, or maybe not I'm having such a great year. My more of a like test of my metal is how can I, whether I can do well when stock market goes down. And hence, my positioning will be a little biased, that way biased towards something which is not depending on stocks, something which offers good protection if stocks go down. So it is natural for me to be in that position. And I talk about this in my book that there is a little bit of of cause of like an ethical thing about this because you sometimes feel like you're profiteering from people's pain because there is that moment uh, in uh, the movie Big Shot. You mentioned Big Shot. There is a movie in the Big Shot uh, when traders are high fiving that they made a lot of money on this credit default swap. But then one of the characters admonishes them and says, like, look, do you know that like for every point Uh, raise an unemployment, there is extra 40,000 excess deaths. Like, you shouldn't be like, you could, whatever, make money, but don't be so upbeat about the fact that you're making money of human tragedy. I think that's a dilemma, traders face, but I don't really think it is a, I think you can reconcile it, you can be sympathetic about what's happening to people, but you can still try to do your best job as portfolio management, manager, and you have responsibility to your investors in times like this to actually maximize the results, because other things in their portfolio are not working at that moment. So you're the one who better be working for them. Right. So you cannot just say, hey, it's a tragedy. I don't want to do anything. I just want to go flat and stay with my family. No, this is what you're hired to do. It's like you're a firefighter, right? There is a fire. So fight the fire.
0: Alex, I, I want to uh, move forward a bit, a few days. On March 5th, one of your colleagues uh said something that when when I was reading it, it it struck me because it was the first indication of a a phenomena. Uh, You were asking your your colleague, Christopher, um, for some sort of of swap or product. I forget exactly which on on March 5th. And uh, uh, they actually, no, sorry, it was QZ who said, uh, and QZ was talking to the desk, the sell side, and they said, crisp answer, nope. So it was the first time that a bank essentially said no to a trade that you thought was pretty, you know, normally the bank would say yes to. Uh, and that phenomenon was that was only the beginning. So can you talk about how you were starting to see cracks emerge in in the in the, uh, in, in the liquidity and how you know that that really just changed the game?
1: Yes, and it goes back to my black hole analogy, right? How the whole texture of the continuum trading world got ruptured by this gravity of the pandemic, uh, and that's why like my first the chapter about the first week was Marshall's called the victory parade, and the second week is was called the loss of Innocence, kind of because up to that point first week, we're still like, it's not happening to us. We're just business as usual here. We're just trying to take advantage of the events, do the best, whatever, for ourselves or our clients, whatever, just doing our job. And then second week, it's beginning, okay, it's happening to us. And financial markets are beginning to get dysfunctional. And then all of a sudden positions that have been working are not working anymore. Because that things are no longer making sense and uh, when banks are not capable to give the give balance sheet hedge funds are very hedge funds like they kind of have look at those like mysterious entities that do whatever they want but the reality is they continuously depend on providers and so they have to be able to transact that's your lifeblood right you need to have able to borrow money against your collateral if you hold color if you have physical assets, you need to be able to execute transactions on exchanges and exchanges charge margins, and you need to execute transactions over the counter, which is a custom-made derivative transactions with banks. That's how, because different hedge funds trade different products, but hedge funds like mine rely on all of those things. If any of those live bloodlines cuts off, hedge funds stop functioning. Now, fortunately, we did not stop functioning, but it was scary. Yes. And, you know,
0: uh, equity investor, I guess, has a choice between just owning the stocks outright, Apple, they own Apple 140, they want it to go to 180, or they can use leverage. But in the world, you, the, the pond, you, you, you swim in, uh, um, Alex, it's, you really have to use leverage. Like if you're trading Fed funds futures and you think it's going to go from 98 to 99.5, you, that's a 1% gain unless you use leverage, right? Because it's, so, it's so, less, so much less volatile than stocks.
1: Yes, we do use leverage, but I will point out even in the world without leverage, the safety can be elusive. Imagine that in 2008, you had your very solid, no leverage portfolio of clue chip stocks, and you happen to have Lehman Brothers hold it. Yes. Right, so, that sense of, with a sense of what is kind of game it in your mind, right? The safest portfolio. You could have treasury bonds, the safest thresh, trade in the world, but held by Lehman Brothers you would have an absolute nightmare, even if you eventually recovered probably what you had, but it would be absolute nightmare. And so it's, there are degrees of how safe things are, but nothing becomes safe when there's a black hole in financial markets. And, that, and the case on point, what started to happen in the middle of March the securities that should actually be most beneficial, most risk-free securities like treasury bonds especially an inflation index treasury bonds, which I pointed out, are the most risk-free because they're not even dependent. You have all the risk. You have no credit risk because it's U.S. government. You have no inflation risk. Just pays inflation plus some spread, mm-hmm. right? And paid by U.S. government. All of a sudden, those securities crushed in the middle of the month. And the reason they crushed is because there was no cash to borrow if you're holding them. So if you buy a billion dollars worth of bonds, if you pointed out, like say it could be very short term, very safe bonds. I don't have a billion dollars if I bought billion dollars worth of bonds. I'm just saying, for example, right, I, I'm not talking, those are not numbers pertaining to my fund. But if I bought a billion dollars of two year notes and I don't have those, I have to immediately borrow this two year notes, I borrow money to hold this two year notes. Now, to borrow, who's going to give me a billion dollars? well they would have to accept those two notes as collateral otherwise they're not going to just give me billion dollars for nothing right uh because who, who is alex uh, my credit wouldn't be good enough for that it's just good because i'm giving the two notes back as collateral let's call the repo transaction now imagine that in a world when people are just like nope don't have those two billion billion dollars we don't care what interest rate you're paying nope not there and uh, then all of a sudden I have no money. So I have to sell those to your notes because I have no money to hold them. Then I sell them at any price. It does not matter if the price is completely, has nothing to do with any kind of rational, like going back to people who like to think about efficient market theory or even behavioral finance. All of those are based that people make voluntary transactions. So when people, uh, efficient market theory talks about people making voluntary transactions based on their analysis, on the best assessment, uh, behavioral finance allows for the fact that people are psychologically affected when they do the transactions, but both of them, I think, are limited because they both assume that people voluntarily enter a transaction on a voluntary basis, whatever their reasons are. But that's actually not what drives financial markets. Financial markets are driven not by people buying and selling because they want to, but because they have to. It has nothing to do with either their state of mind of the economic assessment. Like if you boss you on the shoulder and says, no funding for those two, you know, sell them. You're yeah. hitting the bid because that's what your boss told yeah. me to do. It has nothing to do with your attitude about markets or what, where you're mentally. It's just you push the buttons, right? And then prices got completely out of whack in March 2020 because there was a shortage of cash in the system.
0: Right. Yeah, you said the, the, something like the, the bid is 130 and the ask is, my boss said, if I give you an ask, I'm fired.
1: <laughs> yes,
0: exactly and that's why you you can explain uh the extreme mispricing in inflation index bonds which have an element of, of carry of, of nominal treasury bonds but they also have an inflation break even attached which is sort of security for the CPI consumer price index which is you know when you see a news article saying inflation was 6% that's typically what they're referring to uh headline CPI so uh, yeah alex just just take us take us through the journey of uh you know Mid March, maybe I think I know March 9th was a day that was to be remembered. Uh, it was I think the S and P was down over seven percent. Uh, what was going down in in the Fed funds futures market uh, and also on the long term bond deals? Because I know that soon I don't know if it's on March 9th, maybe it's a few days later, but shortly, short soon, we're going to start to come to a point where bonds, not even inflation index or municipals or anything like that, but 20-year treasury bonds, 30-year treasury bonds, supposed to be extremely risk-off. When the stock market goes down, yield should go down, the bond prices should go up. That ceased to happen. So just, just uh, take us through, you know, starting on March 9th.
1: Yeah, somewhere around March 9th was the inflection point. Because up to March 9th, there was a narrative was the following. The narrative was that pandemic is going to slow down the economy, the policy will be easier. And actually dollar was weakening because the fed, fed already made an emergency rate cut in the beginning of March and there was more cuts expecting low interest rates bad for the like other countries were kind of not yet caught up to US in, in their easing their monetary policy and dollar was weakening stock market was going down bonds were rallying that was kind of the normal playbook if you wish Mar- Somewhere around March 9, the playbook changed to actual shortage of cash because the system started to get disrupted so much that there was just not enough money in circulation. And I made a comparison with later in that summer uh, at one of the Federal Reserve meetings. They would talk about the fact that there were like, no coins on like, like people ran out of coins in the middle of pandemic because of shutdown, like there was no quarters or whatever available. And for some people, actually getting a proper 50 cents change is important, right? You don't want to just throw money away, so people did not need to be, have coins for various... There were situations alive when people need coins, and they were just sucked out dry of the system. But then imagine that happens with all the dollars. They're just not circulating. They didn't. Nobody melted the coins. They're still there. Same thing with dollars. They were just not circulating. And when dollars stopped circulating, first of all, dollar, as a currency, instead of going down, started to go up really sharply. It was going down up to roughly May 9th, and then it turned around, started to go up against all currencies, even currencies which were historically safe harbor currencies like Swiss franc or Japanese yen. Dollar was the best performing one. Of course, all the emerging market currencies, all the currencies like commodity currencies like Australian dollars were crushing. And as you pointed out, that's when precious metals started to go down. Uh, the mentality used to be that, Gold is a crisis hedge, that you hold gold for safety, that like it's a, it's a safe portion of your portfolio. But gold is an inflation hedge, not a pandemic hedge. Gold typically goes up in, when there is like a fear of some kind of geopolitical event like war, because people just don't like kind of go away from fiat currencies and going to precious metals. But in pandemic, when there is no cash to hold gold with, it's, there is no buyers it started to go down. Same thing happened obviously to cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin. I think Ethereum went down to like $100 in the middle of March 2020. Remember Ethereum at 100 bucks, Pretty amazing, right? So uh, again, not I'm not even like following that part of the market very closely, but you need to see the big picture, right? All hard, hard assets were going down, dollars up, Hard assets down, but strangely enough, stocks down, but strangely enough, bonds, treasury bonds went down too for the reasons I described before, there was no funding available. And things got really disrupted because like, even the relationship between different bonds, like for example, treasury bonds of slightly different maturities would so trade at a very different price because there are so-called the bonds. The bonds that are currently benchmarked and some people are holding them for various regulatory purposes. And then there are off the run bonds which are slightly old that were issued say instead of five years ago four and a half years ago and it would be like a significantly different yield so stuff like that started to happen this was kind of like what I'm talking about the disruption and texture of the market two points that seem to be very close all of a sudden very distant like what could happen near the event horizon
0: and the uh... So on the run treasuries are treasuries that are traded very frequently, and off the runs are ones that are sort of in the warehouse, the back of the closet. I think the uh, LTCM, long term capital management hedge fund that went bust in 1997, I think that they also did a uh, a long off the run, short on the run trade that uh, ended up blowing in in their face. I actually uh, I've got a question for you about that. Uh, there's you know I've heard some people argue that the major reason that quantitative easing was done so aggressively was because of the long positions in off the run treasuries and the shorts in the financial futures and on the on on the on the run treasuries and that the dislocation between the two was so large that there had to be sort of sort of a bailout what are what are your thoughts on that
1: i think that still the most uh, reason was the economic disruption was really the main thing that was driving the fed and i think they did not really i think the actions were quite explicable and understandable even if you did not see the treasury bond calamity because I think like even if you saw what was happening in a major economy, the idea to ease and then push out money to people, start their sending checks to people, start paying businesses to stay closed. That made a lot of sense both, I think, at the moment and retrospectively. retroactively, so both fiscal and federal po- and monetary policy kind of made sense. Whether it was colored, I do, however, admit that it might have been colored by this thing in the treasury market because sometimes like, FED has a mandate, right, to maintain, like, maximum sustainable employment and stable yeah. inflation, This dual mandate. But what? how do they do it really? What is really their job? Like, this is the objective of the job, right? But what is their job? And one way to think about their job, their job is to guarantee funding on U.S. Treasury bonds. That's what really the Federal Reserve does. They control funding on U.S. Treasury bonds. They control those lending rate at which you... Uh, can can borrow money if you have treasury collateral that i talked to a few minutes ago about that's being more or less controlled by the fed and they used to it started to get a little different when the rates got to zero but in the past that's how they maintain trades in uh, rates in a corridor like say for example if they, if they had a 2.5 percent target fed funds rate how do they get it there one well, of their if the target rate is above two and a half percent they might buy some treasuries and put some more money in the system. So they would take treasuries, not buy them permanently, but take them into this overnight purchase facility, right? If, they, uh, if the rate goes too low, they would vice versa, pour some treasuries out, do a repo, and get people to buy them, suck out a little bit of money out of the system. So they completely, continuously fudged it to get to the right rate. So people have to be confident that U.S. treasury bonds are safe. They're only safe if you can fund them. That is, if you can borrow money to hold them. Otherwise, they're not safe, as, we, as I've just mentioned, right? Because who cares that they won't default if you still have to sell them, right, at any price? It doesn't matter what the future holds. So it is kind of their job to stabilize, to have the US Treasury market running. And if they see that the market is disrupted, they probably have a little bigger push to, they take it seriously, they take a push to add liquidity. There was this premonition was that September two thousand nineteen, there was a, a few days of strong disruption in the repo market and the Fed was taking it very seriously. While from one perspective you can say who cares if a bunch of overleveraged Fed funds sorry, a bunch of overleveraged hedge fund traders had to pay a lot of money to borrow, like had to pay ten percent overnight. You could just as a person sitting not in a hedge fund world, you could say that serves them right. Furthermore, even the person in hedge fund will sometimes say, "It serves me right if I'm on the wrong side of it, right?" I am not the one to complain about, like, "Oh, uh, something is wrong; they need to come rescue me." That's what we do for a living, right? We cut over our skis; we pay the price. So, from one perspective, you can think it's not a big deal, but from another perspective, I think Fed feels that it's the Fed feels it's their job to make those markets function smoothly and they re- re- really stopped functioning in March, 2020. So it might've colored their approach in terms of how many securities they're going to buy, like how aggressively they will add liquidity, how aggressively they will buy those securities, which have got most disrupted.
0: Mm. Uh, so I'm, I'm going I'm to gloss over a few very interesting trades you did with uh, some, some swaptions, some swaps, pricing bonds relative, relative to swaps, as well as you know, looking at looking at interest rate differentials. That's all in the book, which which again, uh, I guess you can get uh, everywhere where, where books are sold. Alex, I want to move in the interest of time. Want to move on to the thematic issue of liquidity and the fact that banks weren't pricing. You know, uh, um, you know, your traders weren't able to get prices from banks. There were huge dislocations in markets that you know perhaps you've never seen in your career. Uh, and the Fed was very aware of this. And you said that one of your two tenets was that. The monetary and fiscal policy response, so monetary from central bank, fiscal from the government. The monetary and fiscal response would continue building until it overwhelmed any lack of liquidity. So why is it that in this complete lack of liquidity that just baffles you and you know uh, has you very very uh, uh, ruffled that you believe that there will be liquidity on the
1: way? How is it that you could see it? Well, this goes uh, this goes to my beanie baby theory. If there is a demand. Imagine that there is a, you make a product which costs you almost nothing to make and there is a huge demand for your product and people are willing to pay a lot of money for it. What would you do? You'd probably keep making more of it. So if you put yourself in the shoes of Federal Reserve, they can print as much money as uh, they want to. In fact, there was a moment in the middle of 2020, one of the meetings, and Powell said, like, we will not run out of money. I don't know if you remember, but it was a very seminal moment.
0: Yes. I think you talked about the facts.
1: Yeah. And and I was like, no, yep. We're not going to run out of money because there is just no limit to how much they can print. The problem with printing a lot of money is inflation. And some people would argue that right now there is a little bit kind of a payback for this printing that happened two years ago in inflation. And that is a completely separate macroeconomic debate. But as long as people are short dollars and demand dollars, this is the beauty of it. Any situation that stems from the shortage of dollars can be easily easily, say, solved by the Fed. That is, if you are the person producing this product and you can produce as much of it as you want to at no cost, then you can easily solve any problem created specifically by the shortage of that product.
0: Yes, and, and you saw that in in the dark days uh, you, you saw that. So that that's the part three is the dark, dark days. The trades you had in the first week, the age of wonder, very, very profitable. But in the dark days, uh, a lot of trades weren't working. I imagine it was the long-term bonds. What were the other trades that weren't working? And was it frustrating the fact that, hey, this isn't working, but if this isn't working, this should be working because that's what, you know, 98% of the time
1: it's correlated. That must have been really frustrating. I don't know frustrating the, the word. What I felt is not I'll be honest, what I felt was not frustration, I felt dread. <laughs> okay. And so, and that dread that I might not be able to hold out, hold to things. In some weird way, it started to make sense to me, right? That how things were unraveling because of the shortage of liquidity. And what was happening is throughout March, as my positions that were betting on markets going down were working, I started to accumulate other assets, assets which were actually would benefit from when the liquidity uh, arrives back, and, but that ad, those assets continue to go down, be that stocks, dividend, futures, eventually, like I added some oil and started, I turned around some positions which were, for example, I uh, covered some of the risks on interest rates, I covered risks like short positions like Australian dollar, so my portfolio was turning around and now it was getting more vulnerable, so it's not just the positions that, like in my mind, it brought to maybe like balance, my portfolio came to the balance point, while before the crisis, it was really skewed towards benefiting from the crisis. But as you mentioned, not only it became balanced, but also the balance was not working because the positions which were supposed to continue making money were now losing money. And then there was this, in the middle of the month, the portfolios started suffering really sharp losses. And to be clear, so I went from being up on the month of March to down on the month of March, from being, having, like, as I said, my first week of march was already a good year but after these two weeks in the middle i was actually considerably down on the month of march i was still up on the year so at no point i was actually losing money on the year but the velocity of losing and making money was so horrifying in the markets that you really felt that you were only a few steps away from having to unwind positions because even if we were up money on the year the cash was getting scarce because Exchange like everybody was demanding more margins, and all the positions were getting strained all, all around the place. And uh, at any like it felt like, can I really? Will my lines of credits? Will my balance sheet hold up? Will I be able to transact? Will I be able to hold things that I want to hold? What and I had to make decisions: which positions are I'm less conviction in? What do I'm gonna cut? Where I'm gonna keep pushing the risk? Um, and that feeling of Unsafety when the safest portions of my portfolio was very strong. And if you add to that, that that was the time that we wanted to shut down. And we were all, uh, we really didn't know anything about COVID back then. Maybe epic pandemic experts did, but not us, right? So you like walk on the street, maybe you go for a short walk on the street, but you're like worried to touch a leaf on the tree <laughs> and someone else <laughs> on the tree, right? Yes, okay. I'm uh, exaggerating a little bit, but you get that mentality, right? People were coming, going to gro- shopping for groceries, like in a, like in Battle Gear, right? And look at, and there were like pictures on internet, videos of people getting fumigated after they came from a grocery yeah, store. Yeah, people
0: getting their groceries, putting them under water, hot water for thirty minutes. You know, where people wearing like two pairs of gloves, walking across the street anytime anyone walks by. Yeah, that that, that was peak fear. I, I want to ask you. So you started to position to, towards long beta assets, assets that are correlated with the stock market, correlated with risk, because you said if if liquidity is, is going to be restored, you know I have to be a believer, uh, and those those positions uh, di- didn't really work. So when did you start to roll into these uh, you know, long beta risk assets, such as oil futures? Uh, um, uh, uh, dividend futures, the Nikkei and stuff like that. Um, and also maybe you talked about why you did a long duration oil instead of, a April contract of oil.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I like that example a lot because it illustrates the thinking, well, remember you mentioned that how back in, in uh, JP Morgan, they used to call me that I like an icebreaker because I turn like icebreakers. They like turn around very slowly. Right. They don't really just, do like pivots, right? So I was, what for me was actually really fast, but what in reality, very methodically repositioning my part for it. I never, I very seldom doing these things like, okay, today I've been shot, now I'm gonna buy all my shots and go long. It's more like, I'll add, I'll cover 5% of short, I'll cover another 5% of shot, now I'm gonna add another 5% of long. So and it could be a process often happening like two years for me to reposition from being one way to being another way. While there, a lot of it happened in one month, but it still consisted in incremental steps. So throughout of March 20th, as market was moving more to the direction of panic and crisis, I gradually repositioned my book in the opposite direction. And uh, there was this byline that I put on the cover of my book, every crisis starts from fear and ends with necessity. So, we talked about like this middle of March being peak fear, both on markets and in personal life. And eventually, the necessity was going to drive the markets to where liquidity would drive the markets to where they inevitably have to go. And oil is an interesting example because I talked about this about timing of oil. And it's especially interesting now seeing that oil is trading very high because that illustrates that you could have traded oil better than I have or worse than I have and I want to point my mentality oil was very low maybe like trading like something like $20 for the front contract uh, a barrel for the front contract while maybe you believe that this kind of the medium price would be more like 60 in the normal environment $60 a barrel Uh, what could you do about this you could buy this front contract choice A buy this front contract or one of the front contracts and hope that things will normalize. You're sitting now in March 2020. You could buy a contract a year from now, somewhere for summer 2021, and um, think that things will normalize in a year because that's one likely things already open after the pandemic. You could buy oil, but already at a higher price because oil was projected to normalize somewhat. Buy it at like $35, but maybe like two or three years out and say it is going to uh, probably go back to 60, 65, and that's where I'm going to take profits. Or you could just say, I'm going to buy oil and hold it because this will de- disrupt the whole supply system, and eventually when pandemic will be all over, oil will go way up. And eventually the last option, as you see, is working extremely well if you bought deferred oil at $35 and just held it it would be close to $90 now, right, whatever, $85, $87, great trade. If you bought oil uh, for summer of 2021, one year deferment, you would have made money very rapidly. You would have gone immediately to like one in one year from like 30 to $71, made great profit. If you bought oil for however, May 2020 uh, at $20, it actually closed at close to negative 40. There was this amazing event and oil just got oversupplied and you actually had to pay money to take it off your hands and you would be completely busted. Now, what I chose is option three out of those four options and I said, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm not an oil analyst, but somehow two or three years from now, the world will probably be roughly to where to normal in terms of oil consumption. So $32, $35 is just not a normal price for normal world so I'll wait till it goes to normal and sell it and that's what I did I generally just follow my target levels if I decide it is my exit strategy those are my stops those are my targets I don't let events change that so when we got to this price I got out of oil which was good profit it was not a huge trade it's just a good example of thinking it was not a huge trade but I could have made another 20 bucks on it by still holding it But I did not do, I did not succeed in doing this analysis of saying like, you know what, because of the ESG movement, there is no very little invested in your oil prospecting and uh, however oil is still needed. So likely I didn't do that analysis correctly at all, but I just realized that at some point we'll go to the normal environment and expected price will be somewhere between 60 and 65 dollars and it. I could be somehow unlucky and it could be much lower than that, but the odds are way in my favor.
0: Yeah. Uh, we should explain that, uh, you know, when you buy oil, you can buy a barrel of oil, but you know, you were you not getting barrels of oil and putting them in your garage. There's a futures curve where you can buy them in September, 2020, April, 2021, all the way out to, you know, 2030. And you were saying you were buying them deferred. So well out of the time, if, if you had sort of been a, if you got greedy, and bought the cheap contract because it was in Contango, forward sloping, upward sloping, uh, and bought May, then you would have had to take delivery of oil at a time when there was very low demand for it and supply was high because of OPEC. And yeah, you would have, you would have lost so much money than a lot of people, people thought possible. I'm also noticing, Alex, that a consistent theme is because you don't like options, you don't like uh, um, time dependence. You, you wanted to just have the, have the trade and have that be the trade.
1: Yeah, this has a lot to do with what I call a shield against uncertainty. When you, that's why the subtitle of my book. Uh, so here, I'll show my book. See, uh, this is the the trades of March 2020, and you see on top of this byline, every crisis starts with fear and ends with necessity, and the subtitle is a shield against uncertainty. So what I try, what I try to explain or kind of show people that even an environment as uncertain as uncertain as the pandemic environment. We really don't know what's going to happen next. You can focus on things that you can be reasonably certain on. And by certainty, again, I, what I always like to say is there are no certainty in markets, only certain likelihoods. You Sometimes if you can abstract away from where you think is happening to pandemic, where exactly what this player will do, with what the Federal Reserve will do tomorrow, but say what is likely to be two years from now, Sometimes there are situations where it's pretty clear that the odds are very much in your favor, that outcome A is more likely than outcome B, and then it's you bet on that, and that's your shield against uncertainty. Don't worry about betting on things which are uncertain. Bet on certain likelihoods, and oil is just a very good simple example of that. Who knows what's going to happen in the next year, but two, three years from now, let's just assume that normal oil price is a central scenario, and that's not how it's priced.
0: Well, uh, Alex, that is uh, the book. Uh, I really recommend that that people check it out. A lot of in-depth stuff that, that, you know, we only uh, have have had the time to gloss over here. Alex, uh, you know, you're being very generous with your time. Thank you. Now, uh, let's uh, step on our time travel machine to February 2022. Uh, What are the the trades of February 2022, if you were to write that book? (laughs)
1: It's always easier it's like it's like whatever churches said I mentioned in my book. History is written by visitors. yes, <laughs> yes, so the people who blew out did not write a book about it. I can say let's write a book about the times that we made money and interestingly, last few months were challenging for me, challenging for my view because I was assuming that my central view was that the Fed would kind of hold to the stated position the way they stated their position only a few months ago or even and said, um. This is, we don't really know what's going on with inflation. This seems to be a transitory phenomenon having to do with supply bottlenecks. And we really don't know how things will evolve when the environmental fiscal stimulus is diminishing. We're just gonna be patient and wait it out, maybe stop their quantitative easing program, but then wait it out, maybe start reducing balance sheet carefully. But instead, I was not expecting people to be so spooked by the inflation. I was expecting inflation to be high. That is almost unavoidable. This inflation numbers were already baked in in 2020. It seemed pretty obvious that inflation would spike in response to this unprecedented monetary and fiscal expansion. And then you add the fact that um, a lot of political push to lift minimal wages and supply shortages, all of this, put it all together, you get inflation. How can you not? But what is sometimes i get blindsided and when people talk about how they will respond to the environment is very different when, when they are in the environment so friends found themselves exactly in the environment everyone anticipated but they're acting very differently and i'm not even saying that one action or another is correct it's just inconsistent to me what they were saying a year ago to what they're doing now and you all i always say as a trader, don't focus on what should what the Fed should do. Focus on what they will do, because it doesn't matter what you think they should do. It doesn't matter what I think is the best policy for the country. I can chat about this with my friends. My, my investors don't care. They just care about whether I'm making money or losing money, right? So uh, it's kind of almost pointless to say like which of their policy tilts was more dollar tilt the euro, more hawkish tilt right now are correct. To me, they seem to be very intellectually inconsistent and divergent from each other. And I was expecting them erroneously to be more consistent. I didn't expect the Zeitgeist of the market to shift so close, so quickly to like seven hikes or eight hikes or whatever. And of course, every time this hiking frenzy in the past would start, it would be wrong. But maybe this time I'm wrong, right? Maybe every few years there is this whole thing. It's like now inflation is coming for real. Now the bond bull market is over and all this blows over. Um, I really feel that the signs I hear that it's that it's going to be the same as before. Uh, there are a lot of signs of late cycle. There are, like, I see, and those signs are not from, I've had some really good arguments. I've heard some people get really good arguments why this inflation can be persistent and pernicious. But the way I feel the texture of the market is that we're feeling like we're well, in the late cycle, which is very strange because we haven't even started hiking, and it feels like well, we're not. It, to me, everything shows, and even that whole conviction of growth in the market that there will be a lot of hikes is usually the sign that the hiking cycle is almost done. It's what I call a negative predictive power of interest rate futures. And uh, the other thing that I said whenever the curve goes flat, very flat, the yield curve goes flat, and for people who are not familiar with terminology, it means that uh, long term interest rates are very close to short-term interest rates are even lower, which means that the market is already pricing that there will be rates raised, but then they will stop raising rates and maybe even ease two or three years from now. Whenever that is being priced on the market, whenever the curve is flat, it's not flat enough. In my career, market was almost never wrong when it priced those eases in the future, but it always underprices them. So what it means that when the curve takes that shape, like it is now, that actually it should be much more inverted because the rates will start falling a year or two from now sharply. And that's what I choose to bet on now, but with some element of caution, because I have some fears that this time I might be wrong because inflation is, because there are some secular shifts that occurred, like whereas as I mentioned in the early part of this interview, we're in a different universe. So I have some uh, caution to exercise that what if we're really in a different universe? What if really we're not coming back to the patterns of before? Though for now, everything I see seems to be coming to the balance of before my kind of working theory is that um, there are some weaknesses that actually developed in the economy during pandemic but they were papered over with all this uh, flood of liquidity and yes there will be there are a lot of inflationary pressures now but they're a result of that liquidity now that liquidity will be withdrawn this all can very quickly reverse and what we're seeing right now inflation that's a lag response to liquidity that was happening to be poured into the market a year or two years ago. And then now that the dynamic is changing, this thing will reverse very rapidly. Both inflation and economy can reverse very rapidly. And I kind of believe in that magical interest rate futures telling us that kind of being wrong in a magical way, which tells us what the right thing is. Well, I thought interest rate futures were supposed to be the ultimate truth. No, they are the ultimate falsehood. Okay. Impact. They never predict correctly what actually is going to happen, but their mispredictions are a guide, a really guide guide to actually what will happen.
0: Okay, uh, but haven't there the been times when the Fed says we're going to raise, we're going to hike to this, and then the euro dollar futures says, uh, uh-uh, uh we don't believe it. Oh, it's only going to be here, and the, the futures have been have been right about that. Uh, like, what other times have the the futures been wrong? Uh, it's interesting. I didn't know. Well,
1: they're always wrong in a sense that, for example, the Fed says we're going to hide to two and a half percent, and interest rate future will say nope, two and a quarter. But the answer okay, is zero. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that is what I mean by them being wrong.
0: That that um that makes sense. I just want to uh, lay out that you know a lot of macro thinkers they start out having a view on inflation, and then that informs their view on bonds. You are the other way around. You start out with a view on bonds, and that informs your, your view on inflation, right?
1: I think what I I can. It's hard to tell it this way. It's more like, yeah, I like for my first book, the next perfect trade was really about my s- trade selection process. What I tried to, to distinguish is um, from economic forecasting, from choosing trades and there are certain parameters of trades that make them superior. So there are certain trades that if you, if you choose trades with certain features, uh, then you're more likely to make money than lose money, regardless of whether your economic views are correct or wrong. And I think more value is derived from selecting trade pro- trade selection process than from economic analysis process. That's uh, that's what I would say. So one of the one of the good par- examples of what makes you helps to make money is recognizing historical pattern. It does not always repeat, but historical patterns are very powerful. I have like many other parameters, like most carry valuation pool trend, secular trend, uh, relation to global growth and technology development. I have all those other parameters like risk-reward profiles of the trades, dominance. But right now, I just want to talk about historical pattern. And historical pattern, you just notice how things happen. And I've noticed that historical pattern of events happening now is the same historical pattern, very similar to historical pattern, which I recognized in 2018 that told me that well, in a late cycle of easing will happen soon. We have not yet conformed to all those signs that we had. 2018, the signs of late cycle were overwhelming. And I knew that at the time, it's not something I'm doing post facto. I published in 2018 a letter with 16 signs of late cycle. I was fully committed in 2018. As I said, I was, in the ago, the future, so I was maximum long. I fully committed to the fact that rates are going to zero. And I was correct on it, I will point out again, without COVID, because rates started to go down without COVID. So. However, I don't have the same level of commitment now, but I'm seeing maybe like 70% of the signs being aligned again for being late cycle and rates going down. And to me, that is more powerful than speculative arguments against inflation because what happens with inflation, I see 10 very smart economists telling us, well, inflation is a very bad problem and 10 very smart ones saying why it's not. And who? why am I really... I can form my opinion, but how is my opinion even valuable on this debate? I could be just one of 10 guys on one side, uh, 10 people on the other side, right? What is even changing? How is my view even changing the likelihood here? What I can do, however, if my view is not valuable, but my trade selection process is valuable because what I, valuable, I can recognize historical patterns. I can select for ways to capitalize on those which I'm more likely to lose money than make money. And if I'm wrong, I'm wrong, but hopefully I lose less money when I'm wrong than I make when I am right. And it's almost, that is to me much more important than trying to get the specific economic view right. You
0: said that the flattener curve, you think that the curve will continue to flatten. Uh, That can mean, I mean, it means the spread, but that can mean uh, yields, long-term bond yields uh, go down and short-term rates go up. Are you uh, you know, constructive on the long
1: end, and how are you feeling about the sh- short end? I think even from that last time I saw that my view may be leaning like maybe three hikes or something. I don't know, yeah. <laughs> but I'm still not in the camp of believing it. But right now, I believe more like maybe it could be more than one or two hikes. But I also still think that there will be easy. Will be a year from now, will be easy.
0: Right. And how are you thinking about the beta trade? Uh, you know, starting in in the dark days, you began to see the Fed is going to add liquidity until. There's a, too much liquidity, and for that reason, you want to be long uh, beta, you know, commodities, stocks, you know, dividend futures, and the like. Uh, I would add Bitcoin to that and gold. You, I don't think you did uh, invest in Bitcoin, or I haven't heard you, you talk about it. Um, but is how, how, uh, where is the long beta trade now? Where are you on the trade in terms of beta? Risk assets. Well, uh, you
1: kind of answered your own question. Back then, the Fed would add liquidity till there's too much of it. Right now, they will be taking it away till there is not enough of it. Okay. So I am uh, not constructive right now on beta assets in general, even though I think you can surely find pockets of beta which are valuable and earn good carry and just there are things that, first of all, you can hold through the cycles just because they're so good and you could still capitalize on certain things, no doubt. And I think this recent shakeouts probably create some pockets of value or things that you really truly believe in, but now they're like 60, 70% cheaper. Certain particular stocks, which are high-flying stocks, which got really shaken down, I, or certain assets, like if you like precious metals in the long run, well, you like silver at $22, $23 more than you like it at $30, right? So there are, uh, there are pockets of opportunities on the markets, but right now I'm actually feeling probably about as, negative as i can be on beta assets which is not very negative i'm never very negative i've never really built my portfolio around being short i build my part to me like being flat is being short and then i look for crash to buy stuff i don't actually i make money on crisis through using interest rate futures currencies and commodities not using actually outright shots on stocks because it's just a recipe that gets squeezed. right Um, one of the reasons I have, this is the chart I've been taunting since actually 2014, 2015. There is extremely good fit between changing yes. interest rates and the future performance on stock markets. And I've noticed that, and I, what is interesting is you can always like make things back fit if you play with numbers and do deep learning algorithms to match things, and you never know whether it's true or whether you just really found, like found the pattern you're looking for hard. But this was the pattern that I never run through any computers, I recognized it and I said this is the pattern. And then when we later run it through computers, they couldn't find anything better. So look yeah. at the two year change in the 10 year yield. If the interest rates are higher today than they were sorry, if they let's start with low interest rates. If the interest rates are lower today than they were two years ago, that means two years from now the stock market will be higher than it is today. The reverse is not as steadily true, but when you see when stock when interest rates have risen, over two years, that bodes much more volatility for the stock market. And it makes perfect sense because that's the how long it takes for the funding cost for the corporations to lag into, to go into earnings and to performance. It's a little confusing. It's You kind of have to maybe read in the book, look at the chart. It's a lag in one versus the forward in another.
0: Well, that doesn't bode very well, right? Because the 10-year was extremely low uh, as of, you know, let's say March 15th. So in about a month and a half, it's going to be not that your model is not bullish
1: <laughs> yeah so well let's look the things i discovered this pattern in 2014 2015 and see how it played out so anything that happens since then is not backtracking that's forward right that's from the because and i have a proof it was this i published this pattern in my first book the next perfect day which came out in 2015 so there is no way somebody tell me uh, can tell me that i'm looking back at the recent events and backfeeding. but remember tape a tantrum End of 2013-2014, rates have risen. What happened in 2015-2016? There was a correction in stock market, industrial recession, Brexit. What happened then? Rates have fallen a lot. So momentum on interest rates became positive. 2016, high to Brexit, rates are much lower than in 2014. What happened the next two years? Post-U.S. election, big rally to, up to 2018, we're having a rally in stock market. Now, where we're in 2018? 2018, we see a bunch of hikes. Rates are much higher than they were in 2016. Now, what happens in the consequent two years? We're having stock market correction in 2018, and then even the COVID crisis, something we couldn't predict, but somehow it fits into this pattern perfectly. Whereas the market in 2020 yields are historically low relative to 2018, where they were relatively high. Huge gap the other way. And what happens in the next two years? Tremendous gravity-defying stock market recovery. Where we're at today? Today we're rolling under this environment. Uh, the rates are now higher than they were. They're not very high, but they're higher than they were two years ago, and they'll be even more so as we move into 2020. Uh, sorry, 2022, where we will be comparing them with the lows, where all the all the credit positive credit impulse was created. So this chart has been so. This pattern has been so powerful that I'm kind of feeling that we need to brace for stock market volatility. And one of the things that I've been saying in 2018, for example, I was telling people several times, I did this poll, I would go into some convention, I would be a speaker and I would say, okay, raise your hands if you think that you can buy stock market cheaper than it is today in the next few years. Significantly cheaper. And almost everybody said yes, right? And I said, like, so why are you long now? I feel like we're in this environment. I think we will get market... Even with this correction, there is still good chances that somewhere in the next two three years we'll get market cheaper than it is today. I don't, I'm not saying that has to fall below March 2020 lows. I'm not like a doomsayer. I think that just historical pattern tells me that if you run to like very strong at the money highs after this run up and expansion and combined with raising interest rates, usually sometime in the future, there's a cheaper point. So I'm not very constructive on beta right now.
0: Got it, thank you for that. Uh, Alex, I'd point out that the people raising their hands they probably have a higher opportunity cost because their al- alternative to not being in stocks is you know, putting their money in a bank where they're earning 25 basis points or something like that. Where when you don't put money in stocks, you do all these very you know, quantitative advanced macro strategies. So maybe they don't have as many options as you.
1: <laughs> they don't, but as rates rise, those options also increase because earning 2% is better than earning 0%. And I'm not at all, I, I wanna be very clear. My fund is for qualified purchases only. It's not for, you have to be accredited in certain ways to be invested in it. I do not, I'm not qualified to give advice to individual investors, how to structure their portfolios. I never aspire to that. What I'm qualified to do is trade one specific strategy, which is not even comprehensive in terms of portfolio location. What I do, I manage money in one specific way, which allow which is different from what other people do, which allows people who want to diversify some of the assets to have to a ex- different set of exposures. So I'm not the one to be telling people, oh, right now you have to be 60% bonds and 40% stock. But I'm just pointing out that there are alternatives even for individual investors. How they should be allocating, they should make their own decisions or talk to their financial advisors.
0: Alex, uh, thank you for clarifying that, Alex. Uh, really quickly, could you summarize your view on the, the dollar very briefly? I, I know you've thought that the dollar typically is weak during hiking, hiking cycles, which is, defies common economics 101 logic. Yes, that was the history
1: of the dollar in the early uh, beginning of the century, right? From 2003 to 2007, dollar continued to weaken despite strong hiking cycle. And conversely, actually, when easing cycle starts, dollar usually strengthens. And, I was modeling the cycle based on this, based on uh, that history. So my buyers up to maybe second half of last year was to be short dollar. And it actually worked up to the point. But then it started to, the city started to kind of show cracks. I don't know what it is that really, like it's a long discussion, what it is that really difference. Maybe what constitutes tight economic environment is just, very much lower rates, maybe like zero with just not too much new easing is already too tight. I don't know what it is, but it's one of my thesis is like, hey, look, we're not actually seeing fiat collapse. Some things, uh, services are going up in price, but we're not seeing like gold and Bitcoin and all those like indicators of surplus liquidity. They're not going crazy at all. I mean, real estate is still strong, but I think the original craze in real estate is also probably over. I don't know. It's hard for me to judge. But um, I am so I have to sometimes you just have to, especially with currencies, you have to recognize and respect the trends. So I kind of had to turn around on dollar and position myself much more towards long dollar environment. And I am not super committed. Because obviously I was wrong and I'm not so sure. Maybe that shift to short dollar environment can yet happen, But right now I'm actually leaning towards long dollar. And this is just sometimes you just have to throw the white towel on some trades.
0: Yes. Uh, Alex, it's been a total pleasure having you on. My, my final question for you is fi- financial gravity really went backwards during, during March of 2020 and you said we're, we went into the supermassive black hole, there's the accretion disk, now we're in a, a new parallel universe and the new parallel universe could have different rules uh, and such as you know, risk parity no longer works, for example, but it could be a world that is very similar to the one that you, know, you, you succeeded in the macro world prior to March 2020. My question is how are you going to be gauging and testing and learning and seeing if you're in a parallel universe that is very similar or if things are very, very different?
1: Honestly, one thing at a time. It, uh, sometimes when people ask me, like, what if this happens? What if that happens? We have our risk committee discussion in our firm, like, what if this happens? What if that happens? Very often I'm like, well, we'll just see when it happens. We'll have to form our opinions. I'm trying to, I'm seeing patterns. When patterns start diverging, I have to reassess like For example, up to the point, as example you gave with the dollar, up to the point patterns conform to me to weak dollar environment. And when dollar stalled for, kind of was going nowhere for a year, it was still kind of conforming. But now it no longer really conforms. So I have to recognize that it. It feels like a different pattern now. So maybe slightly different trading is required here. So uh, because my portfolio is long term. Adjusting to new economic regimes is on slow and painful, and some losses are sometimes involved because taking some losses, stopping out of some positions, but slowly sometimes is involved because you can. I don't like jump on one day's news oh, now we're going to go long dollar. The icebreaker doesn't do that. I think I just have to go, I'm just going through the process of learning new reality and seeing what conforms and what does not. Mm
0: Brilliant. Well, Alex, thank you so much for coming on Forward Guidance, being so generous with your time and insights. I know your time is very valuable, but it's been wonderful picking your brain. I really, I cannot recommend your book highly enough to our audience. How about about you put it up one more time? Uh, The Trades of March, uh, A Shield Against Uncertainty, uh, very uh, high level analysis into the trenches of macro. If if you want to go into the trenches, this is the book for you. Um, Alex, thank you so much.
1: Thank you very much. It was a pleasure.